It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. That was an awesome game last night. I've seen 57 Super Bowls now, and I think that one was the best, the most exciting, the most gripping, the best storylines. Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs somehow managing to pull it out with a field goal with eight seconds left in the game. And it certainly didn't seem that way in the first half. I mean, the Philadelphia Eagles are a bigger and stronger team. It looked like they were going to dominate. At halftime, the Eagles led 24-14, to and even that's misleading because one of those two Kansas City touchdowns came on a fumble recovery. Uh, so basically, Mahomes, who has been playing with that high ankle injury, had only thrown for one touchdown. And it just didn't look like they could stand up to the Eagles. And I don't know what happened, especially when there was a late tackle, fair, perfectly fair tackle of Mahomes, and he had hobbled out of the game before halftime, uh, how he was able, able to come back and play. But in the second half, it just all turned around. Mahomes and Kansas City, I don't want to say dominated, but they did what they needed to do. Three touchdowns from Mahomes, and, and Jay, uh, Jalen Hurts of the Eagles Played a fantastic game. He made one mistake. He he was the he was the one who fumbled the ball in the first half that led to a, a KC touchdown. But the main thing is, you know, there was I, you could tell after the game there was a certain resentment of the press, particularly uh, Travis Kelsey, who's turned out to be uh, Mahomes' favorite receiver. Kept saying, "You guys said we couldn't do it. You said we were there's no way," and that may be true. But so the uh, Chiefs win their second Super Bowl in four years. And ironically, the hobbled Mahomes helped set up the final touchdown by running 26 yards. You know, sometimes the receivers are covered and everything's moving. You see a gap in the defense. And Hertz is very good at this too. And you just run for as long as you can. In fact, one of the things that Kansas City did at the end was they ran out the clock rather than taking the easy score and letting Philly get the ball back with, you know, two minutes left. They just ran out the clock until they could try the final field goal attempt. Now, there was a controversial late call uh, in which the Eagles defender was uh, uh, called for holding. It could have gone either way. I don't know that I would have called it, but, you know, you can't stop the receiver's progress. And there were other calls, you know, it just seemed like there were too many damn calls that rested on whether or not a receiver had control of the ball, which is a very fine and and, uh, subjective thing. And Kansas City would have had another touchdown had the refs not ruled that uh, the receiver didn't have control of the ball, therefore was an incomplete pass rather than a recovery and a touchdown. And there was one that went the other way too. And I just think too much time was spent on these calls, you know, if you've got the ball in your arms and it's not popping out, that's control. I mean, it just leaves too much up to the refs. Also, you know, they're playing in Glendale, Arizona. The turf was horrible. They were using some kind of new turf and everybody's slipping on it. This is the premier showcase for the National Football League. Like, how is that possible? They're in the desert outside of Phoenix. It's 74 degrees. 
It's not like it just rained the day before. And the NFL needs to do something about that. Um, But it was like two prize fighters, you know, who just kept coming back and kept coming back. But the inability of the Eagles to score, in part that's because Kansas City had more control of the ball in the second half, was just an amazing turnaround from that first half when they just looked utterly dominant. So I thought it was a great game. The only game I rank higher is the one that I had a huge rooting interest in, and that's Super Bowl three. You know, it didn't even used to be called the Super Bowl at the beginning. It was the AFL versus the NFL championship. But Super Bowl three was the one when uh, Joe Namath and the New York Jets upset the Baltimore Colts from the fledgling AFL, uh, and that shut up a lot of people. Uh, President Biden missed an opportunity to reach a good chunk of tens of millions of people by ultimately not doing uh, the sit-down with Fox News. There's a lot of confusion about that. Um, Fox was going to have somebody from the news division interview the president. It was most likely going to be Brett Baer or Shannon Bream. So why the White House first tried to duck that and then agreed to an interview with this uh, streaming service called Fox Soul, Uh, aimed at black audiences, and then backed out of that, or they claimed that Fox backed out, but basically, you know, Joe Biden didn't want to do it. And that's his right. There's nothing in the Constitution that says you have to give a Super Bowl interview. But I thought it was a missed opportunity. I mean, if he'd sat down with Brad, it would have been fine. Biden would have done fine. He would have reached a lot of people. Um, You know, I know they have a certain distaste for Fox in the White House, but they do put uh, senior officials on. I mean, I've interviewed Jen Psaki and John Kirby and Gene Sperling, Uh, But, you know, he's the president of the United States and he decided he didn't want to do it. It is comparable to Donald Trump in 2018 passing up a Super Bowl interview um, with NBC when he was pissed at NBC. And this is a tradition that goes back to Barack Obama and 2009. Hey, I did want to mention that John Fetterman is out of the hospital because I spoke on Friday about how he had been... uh, suffered from lightheadedness and they'd stayed a couple days and they'd ruled out another stroke. And it just, you know, it unleashed all these stories about, well, the press was covering this up. No, that's not true at all. Anybody could see what Fetterman's condition was in the final months of the election, including in that disastrous debate. Now, then you get into, well, how is he going to be in a few months? And even now the question is, you know, maybe he will make more progress in his recovery and physical therapy uh, and be able to be more and more of a regular senator rather than one who needs a lot of special accommodations. But the idea that the press somehow covered for him, I don't think is true at all. But anyway, I'm glad he's out of the hospital. Um, and by the way, when I've had kids, none of them have appeared in magazine shoots. But my colleague and friend Peter Ducey, uh, who is married to Hillary Vaughn of Fox News, they just had a, a baby and there was a little spread in people, at least online, So uh, I guess he's become more famous than I realized. All right, let's get down to business. Story number one. I am just as baffled. Just as baffled as you and everyone else in the country and even our military leaders about these UFOs. What else can you call them? Unidentified flying objects. You know, we had the melodrama over the Chinese spy balloon. And since then, there have been three other shootdowns. And just when you think they're done, there's another one. So just yesterday, the U.S. military shot down an unidentified object over Lake Huron. Uh, The Defense Department saying it was unmanned, not a military threat. But what happens is, uh, this was flying at about 20,000 feet. I mean, that's 
you know, very capable and they were very worried about interfering with airline traffic. You know, most airlines settle in at 30,000, but you got to get to 30,000. Military leaders determined that the object was not a threat, but opted to shoot it down uh, because it could pose a hazard. Okay, that was yesterday. On Saturday, we had the shoot down before that, which was the one over Canada, where Justin Trudeau asked for help, uh, and it turned out an American fighter jet shot down the whatever it was over Canada. And then on Friday, you had the one that uh, was a high-altitude object in Alaskan airspace, and we're shooting it down. And so if military leaders can't tell us what these things are, I mean, it raises all kinds of questions. No, I don't think aliens are coming. But I do wonder, I mean, are these all connected to China? Are they other things uh, that have any kind of logical explanation? Why is there such a spate of them now? It's inexplicable. Have these things been going on all along as part of a calculated global surveillance effort? And our military is just noticing. Remember when they tried to push back and say, well, you know, there were three balloons um, from the Chinese under Trump, except they weren't detected until after the fact. It obviously gives you great pause to wonder about the defense of our skies and what can get through and what can't get through. And it cannot be a coincidence that suddenly we're shooting things down virtually every day, but haven't, why, I don't understand why they haven't made more progress in recovering one of these other vessels or pieces. Obviously, it has to be sophisticated enough to be able to fly and make more progress on telling us what the hell this stuff is. <laughs> That's all I can tell you. Uh, it is just a bizarre situation. Oh, I wanted to get this in, meant to mention it earlier. Um, it's my daily Santos item. So George Santos, um, you know, who took a lot of flack at the State of the Union and got into the altercation with Mitt Romney, said, well, after that, Kirsten Cinema offered him some words of encouragement. You know, like, hang in there, buddy. Something to that effect. Here's the quote from the Arizona Senator's spokeswoman. I know this is shocking, but he is lying. Kirsten did not speak to him. Huh? Okay, like, why would you tell that lie? It doesn't even get you anything. Knowing that if it didn't happen, you'd be rebuked, and it would be, you know, lie number 275 or 826. New York Times has a story today about his his FEC reports and how, you know, he would there would often be a lot of items of one hundred ninety nine dollars and you know ninety cents because over two hundred you have to itemize or have receipts and then there was this sushi dinner that was about sixty bucks you know while he's out campaigning and then other expenses disappear when they redo it and then the sushi dinner suddenly goes up to one ninety nine that must have been really good sushi I don't know I mean there's a lot of investigations going on. You know, I was so caught up in the Super Bowl excitement that I forgot to say that I hope you had a good weekend, Super Bowl or not, and I hope you had a chance to see Media Buzz, where we uh, interviewed Kelly and Conway from the Super Bowl, and so we had a chance, in addition to talking about media and politics, to talk a little football. She's a crazy, diehard Eagle fan, 
She was there with her kids. And I'm sure she's pretty bitterly disappointed. I mean, the, the, the pain for Eagles fans is it looked like they were going to wrap this game up. And then to lose in the fashion they did. And then the Eagles, although they had their frustrations in the second half, played well. But not well enough, I guess. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. All right, number two. New York Times has a piece about what do you do if you're Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump is trying to bloody you up. Uh, so it begins by saying that for months, DeSantis has tried to avoid conflict with the former president. But how much longer can that work? You know, Trump's out there with uh, Ron DeSanctimonious. Um, I talked on the show yesterday, and I've talked on the podcast about this ridiculous, unsubstantiated, um, inflammatory, and unproven charge about, you know, fraternizing with young students 21 years ago when Ron DeSantis spent one year as a high school teacher at a private school in Georgia. Um, and, you know, I played the clip on, on the air. The way the governor responded to that was to say, um, I'm busy working, you know, for the people of Florida. Uh, I'm not spending my time smearing other Republicans. So, from the Times, uh, Sanders has to decide how forcefully to counterattack once he engages with Trump, and whether he's left himself enough room to effectively parry these taunts and smears, oh, without offending his loyal supporters. So that's the thing. I mean, I'm sure Ron DeSantis can push back pretty hard against any charge that Donald Trump wants to cook up. But the problem is, he will ultimately need Trump voters uh, or at least not alienate Trump voters, one, if he, to win the nomination, because some of them may like Trump's policies but not Trump, and two, if he were to make it to a general election, he doesn't want the MAGA base to stay home. So it says in this piece that the 76-year-old former president um, has redefined his party's image on grievances while the 44-year-old governor has presented himself as a younger, smarter, more strategic, policy-focused, and disciplined. But DeSantis' above-the-fray posture carries risks. One of the central tenets of the modern Republican Party under Trump has been the willingness to fight ruthlessly and tirelessly. Well, you know, politics ain't beanbag. And a lot will depend on the ability of the governor of Florida assuming he runs, uh, to punch back. That's the way it works. And this piece reminded me of some of the things that Trump did to his Republican rivals back in 2015 and 2016. Uh, he called Ben Carson pathological and kind of likened him to a child molester. I remember interviewing Dr. Carson at a pull aside at, at some event on the road where I had to ask him to respond to those things. Um, he pretty much implied that Ted Cruz's father had been linked to the JFK assassination. I mean, there's not a lot of places where Trump won't go 
if he thinks it will be effective. Um, so the question then is, how, you know, it's not just uh, DeSantis. I mean, Nikki Haley is announcing tomorrow, right? Um, you know, Kellyanne was on my show yesterday, as I mentioned, and she said, well, you know, if these people want to run, they should get in now. They shouldn't wait. Well, I mean, why? It's only February of the year before uh, all the primaries and caucuses. Donald Trump wants to be out there as the only declared candidate. Great. But, you know, the question is how long a season do you want? In the case of a governor like DeSantis, he can just say, well, I've got my legislative session, which doesn't end until May. And it's true. He's got to rack up some accomplishments that he can use as the basis for running. Every governor who's run, remember Dukakis had this, uh, George W. Bush and others have had to balance to some degree because you don't stop being governor. Um, the duties of that job, which can be an advantage with running for president, where the job can also be a disadvantage because it gets you into controversies that you don't necessarily want to be enmeshed in. But I don't see Mike Pompeo or Mike Pence or others getting into the race until a few months down the road. Nikki Haley, I guess, wants to show that she's bold and get out there. Um, But you look at the polls... And I'm not, you know, I think she's got an admirable record as the governor of South Carolina and as UN ambassador, um, you know, but she's down there. And so is Pompeo, like one, two, three percent. I mean, the only guy right now, and these are snapshots, who's up there still trailing by double, substantial double digits, but at least on the radar screen is Ron DeSantis. Story three. So this kind of ties in because uh, it's a um, it's conservative columnist Ross Douthat saying, and I heard a lot of this from conservatives, and I asked Kellyanne Conway about it, and I said, there's been charges that Biden plagiarized, you know, MAGA rhetoric and the kind of stuff that Trump says by talking about made in America and so forth. And I said, if that's the case, shouldn't, isn't that a win for your side that the other guy is trying to co-opt your agenda? And she said, yes. And then she pivoted to something else. So, Here's doubt that saying if President Biden sometimes sounded like, a lot like Donald Trump during his State of the Union, boasting about a record of economic nationalism, the imitation may soon run the other way. Oh, this is a twist. Biden's attacks on congressional Republicans for being allegedly eager to cut Medicare and Social Security were a clear preview of how he hopes to run against the GOP in 2024, but they were also a possible preview of how Trump may try to reclaim the party's nomination by reprising his 2016 campaign's rejection of Tea Party austerity and attacking potential rivals, including DeSantis, as libertarian dogmatists who don't care about the middle class. And this struck a real chord with me because I remember I interviewed Donald Trump for Media Buzz six times during that 2016 campaign. And in one of the first interviews, I remember pressing him about Medicare and Social Security. And he unequivocally said that basically he would not touch Medicare and Social Security, that people had earned it. And that was a real break with Republican orthodoxy of the, most, of the previous half dozen years. You know, when Paul Ryan was speaker, there was always talk of entitlement reform, reducing government spending. Trump was never a huge, and you saw this in his presidency, uh, uh, let's slash government spending guy. I mean, he talked about waste and fraud and so forth. But I remember thinking, 
This is interesting. It's a Republican running for president who, who wants to run as a champion of Medicare and Medicaid, which, of course, you know, they're such big drivers of the federal deficit and debt that if you don't reform them, and this is the larger thing I've talked about yesterday and I've talked about on the podcast last week, I mean, they're going to go broke. They're going to be insolvent. And eventually, the two parties are going to come to some kind of compromise. But in the meantime, you know, Joe Biden is going to hit Republicans over the head with it. But Donald Trump could do the same thing. Uh, so, for example, coming back to this uh, Ross Douthat column, um, Trump is, is well positioned to go after DeSantis um, on this question of government spending. Uh, there's a reminder that Mitt Romney in 2012 uh, helped knock Rick Perry out of the race. You remember the former Texas governor? Um, because Perry had called Social Security a Ponzi scheme, which you could argue there's some element of that, but you know, the point is that people keep paying in and you pay tomorrow's benefits with today's workers. Um, so the non-Trump GOP can spend, expect to spend the looming presidential race fa- facing similar attacks from the Biden White House and the Trump campaign. Um, even if Trump can't beat DeSantis by harping on his past positions, he'll be reinforcing for swing voters the liberal narrative that non-Trump Republicans only care about the rich. Now, DeSantis can counter, uh, can counter that because he can point to his record in Florida where he has supported raising teacher pay, uh, certain biomedical programs. You know, he's not, he's obviously popular enough to have won this landslide re-election victory, including in formerly left-leaning places like Miami-Dade County. And so I think it's going to be hard to paint him as an out-of-touch right-winger, but there will be the question of what does he say he's going to do about Social Security, Medicare, and what has he said in the past, and can you throw the old quotes back at him, which is something that the media love to do and which is something that political opponents also love to do. But further complicating the problem for Republicans is you have things like the fair tax, which is basically you know a national sales tax or value-added tax, that falls heavily on the middle class, and then you say, well, we're not going to have a federal income tax, but it doesn't matter. The federal income tax is progressive. A national sales tax is not. It takes a bigger chunk out of people who are just getting by, trying to buy enough groceries for the week and keep gas in their car if they have to pay that. I mean, it's not, it's not going to pass. It's certainly not going to pass with the Democratic Senate and the Democratic president. I don't think it's ever going to pass. But you get back to this, you know, is Rick Scott's proposal... Um, something that Biden can use, as he did at the State of the Union, to say, well, some Republicans want to do this, folks. And Mitch McConnell has wasted no time, precisely no time, trying to throw Rick Scott under the bus. For one thing, he kicked him off uh, one of his committees, and Senator Scott claims it's because he challenged McConnell for the Senate Minority Leader's Post and got 10 votes. McConnell says, no, 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 there's a rotation, and if he wanted to keep that committee, he had to rotate off to some other committee. I don't know the truth of it is, but I don't think there's any love lost there. My point is, McConnell said, oh, that's the Rick Scott proposal. That's not the Republican Party proposal. It's Rick Scott. That's R-I-C-K. So uh, a little bit of a split in the Senate Republican ranks on that one. Story four, Washington Post scoop saying that back in 2020, after the election, and when Donald Trump was still trying to cling to office, 
his campaign hired an outside research firm to try to prove the electoral fraud claims that he was starting to talk about and has not stopped talking about since. But the campaign never released the findings. Why? Because the firm disputed many of his theories and couldn't offer any proof that he had actually won the election. So you you hire this company, you say, get me the goods, they come back and say there are no goods to get, and then you, you bury it. <laughs> so it's an outfit called the Berkeley Research Group. Uh, it was hired to study election results in six states, looking for fraud, irregularities. And this is the last weeks of 2020 before the Capitol riot. Here's a person familiar with the work, speaking on condition of anonymity. They looked at everything, change of addresses, illegal immigrants, ballot harvesting, people voting twice, machines being tampered with, ballots that were sent to vacant addresses that were returned and voted, literally anything you could think of. Voter turnout anomalies, date of birth anomalies, whether dead people voted. If there was anything under the sun that could be thought of, they looked at it. And while they found, you know, a few anomalies and unusual data patterns, um, they did not believe the anomalies were significant enough to make a difference in who won the election. Again, quote from this unnamed source. None of these were significant enough. Okay, we just said that. Uh, Just like any election, there were always errors, omissions, and irregularities. It was nowhere close enough to what they wanted to prove, and it actually went in both directions. So, officials from this Berkeley outfit briefed Trump, Mark Meadows, his chief of staff, and others on the findings in a conference call in December of 2020. Meadows was skeptical. He continued to maintain that Trump won. Trump also continued to maintain that he won the election. But isn't it interesting that when it comes down to actually having enough proof to convince a judge in a lawsuit, or even the court of public opinion based on you know hiring your own outside firm, remember the Justice Department, then run by Bill Barr, also conducted an investigation. I don't think Bill Barr would have been unhappy if he could have come up with solid proof that Donald Trump had actually won the election, but he didn't because it wasn't there. One of the people said the goal was to find out what actually happened. If you remember in that time, there were all sorts of crazy things being said. We wanted to sort it out. And this outfit was paid $600,000 plus to do this study. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Number five, here's a piece by uh, Andrew Sullivan on his Substack. Um, He's pivoting off the State of the Union, but he's making a larger point that I think is worth our spending a little time on. He's talking about Biden um, bashing the GOP over the head with a big club and showing he's being fair by acknowledging it isn't all of them. This obviously goes back to the yelling and the heckling and the... um, battle over Social Security and Medicare. It was a reboot of the Clinton-Gingrich dynamic, which was primarily good for Clinton. Let me just digress for a moment here. You know, Bill Clinton did this thing, and he did it very well, called triangulation, which is he said he was running against brain-dead ideas in both parties. So he positioned himself not as the typical, you know, he's a Southerner, he positioned himself in 1992, uh, not as a typical free-spending 
northern liberal, but as a more moderate Democrat, and people can debate that, and, and did. But when Newt Gingrich and the Republicans won control of Congress in 1994, for the first time in 40 years, that's how long it had been, and that's what a shock it was, um, they decided on certain things to cooperate. I remember vividly in the 96 re-election campaign for Clinton, he made a deal with Gingrich and the House Republicans to um, crack down on welfare, welfare reform it was called, that you had to, there were more stringent rules about showing you were actively looking for a job and you had to get a job and at a certain point, if you didn't get a job, um, your benefits would run out. And the left went nuts. The left hated Bill Clinton for this. But it was kind of closer to where the center of the country was. It was also good for Gingrich, but not in terms of Clinton's re-election. Um, so Andrew Sullivan says that Biden was triangulating hard. It just made me think, because I hadn't heard the term in quite some time. Um, and Trump should sit back and bask in his legacy of reorienting U.S. politics. This is another way of my asking Kellyanne Conway, well, isn't it show that you were onto something if the Democrats are trying to preempt your agenda? Again and again, this was an America first speech, says Andrew. It was about building infrastructure, protecting entitlements, buying American, reshoring industry, cutting drug prices, bringing the supply chain back to the homeland, and a high-tech industrial policy to compete more aggressively with the Chinese. This is a whole different world, he says, than Barack TPP Obama, that was the Trans-Pacific Trade Pact, or Bill Nafta Clinton, another subject on which Bill Clinton was able to pass the North American Free Trade Act with a lot of Republican votes, and the left hated it. So you're seeing some of these patterns coming back, and it suits Biden's old-school working-class style of liberalism. I mean, you know, it's Scranton Joe, the guy who took the Amtrak train. It kind of fits. Andrew says, this may be the first SOTU with a rhetorical flourish like this one. Lumber, glass, drywall, fiber optic cable. Um, And he even said that Biden talked about, for the first time, whether he's successful at his own other story, cracking down on the border and the way in which uh, he's, at least for one month, been able to uh, reduce the numbers of illegal migrants coming across the border um, by requiring the people in Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Venezuela uh, don't come first and deal with it differently. So also, um, Biden talked about police officers and how most of them are honest and they put their lives on the line. You know, all of this is probably closer to the center of American politics. And the strategy is obvious. I got to get this line in from Andrew. Don't mention the woke S. Even though it's a full tilt in his administration's policies, it's better not to engage at all. Keep the focus on the economy, America first, populist themes, return to normalcy. Um, But then, in fairness, I'll just include this part. Sullivan goes on to say that, you know, then you have the question of Biden's age. And that against Trump, he's a decent bet. Against DeSantis, obviously decades younger, it's iffier. Against mortality... It's just a question of time. That had to do with the idea of if Biden wins a second term, what if his health doesn't hold up, Kamala Harris becomes president. Um, All unknowable, but certainly, you know, even the New York Times and Washington Post have done these pieces about Kamala Harris's unpopularity within the Democratic Party, how they don't think she has the skills 
to win the top job. Obviously, it's different if you are vice president and you succeed to the top job, which is all kind of maudlin, and I don't like talking about it, but it's part of the Sullivan essay. Uh, all right, let's throw in a little bonus here. Story number six. Um, James O'Keefe, you know him as the self-styled conservative media watchdog, founder of Project Veritas, uh, who has uh, done some extremely controversial things. His group basically, you know, secretly tape records um, journalists and others, and they've, he scored some very big hits with that approach. I don't like the approach because it involves lying. Um, and he's also gotten into trouble. But now he's in some trouble with his own organization, this first reported by New York Magazine. So the executive director of Project Veritas sent out an internal message to the staff saying, O'Keefe will be taking a few days off well-deserved PTO. What is that? It's just basically vacation. PTO. Um, But it goes on to say, like all newsrooms at this stage, the Project Veritas board of directors and management are constantly evaluating the best path forward for the organization. Well, that sounds a little ominous. So let's see what this is about. Oh, so the Daily Beast has done some reporting on this and says the following. O'Keefe is being considered for removal from his leadership position following complaints of his, quote, outright cruel behavior toward employees and disgruntled donors, according to an internal memo that was signed by a third of the group's employees. Employees said that working for O'Keefe could mean being, quote, again, publicly humiliated by the founder and public crucifixion. Again, this is according to a memo signed by a reportedly, a third of the staff. They claim that staff could be required to undergo lie detector tests, that O'Keefe was, quoting again, a power-drunk tyrant, according to one complaint, and that he once took a sandwich from a pregnant woman because he was hungry. I mean, that's the kind of little anecdote that sticks with you. They also suggested that O'Keefe was using Project Veritas's money to boost his theatrical interests. Back in December, Project Veritas said it provided a uh, $20,000 in excess benefits to O'Keefe to pay for staff to accompany him to Virginia when he starred in a 2021 production of Oklahoma. I didn't know that he had the uh, theater bug. Um, there's even more on this. Rule number one, you can't spit in an employee's face over a tweet. True story. Um Now, here's the problem with this. I don't know if this is true, exaggerated. I don't know if it's going to lead to anything. The idea that this group could dump O'Keefe and just hire somebody else and move on is just fantasy land because James O'Keefe is Project Veritas. Uh, And it's not just like, well, I've decided to retire. I mean, according to at least some of the staff, uh, to say he's difficult to work for, would be an understatement. But we'll see how that one plays out. By the way, at the Super Bowl, all these luminaries were there. So Paul McCartney there, you think he'd be much more into soccer. And Elon Musk at the Super Bowl, sitting next to Rupert Murdoch, because Fox was the one that carries the Super Bowl, you know, rotates every three years. I wonder what they talked about. All right. Uh, Once again, hope you had a good weekend. Some of the Media Buzz segments are online. Hope you'll check them out. If you didn't get a chance to see the show, Thanks for sticking with me on this podcast. We'll see you tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. 
From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.